always the best. You're amazing. We love you. All right, you can take your seats and then jump straight into it this evening. The New York Times in 2018 wrote an article that said, everyone is cancelled. In 2019, an article came out listing some famous cancelled people, and they included Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Galileo, Joan of Arc, six popes, Socrates, Pharaoh Akhenaten, Taylor Swift, President Trump, Kanye West, Bill Gates, Gwen Stefani, the live-action remake of Milan. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm offended. Cristiano Ronaldo and, of course, Jesus, they said, had all been cancelled. I'm going to talk to you this evening about cancel culture. Cancel culture. It refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for cancelling public figures and companies that have said or done something considered objectionable or offensive. It's generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. That's the definition of cancel culture. Closely linked to call-out culture, cancel culture is actually Macquarie Dictionary's word of the year last year. So much has it come from in the last decade where nobody said cancel culture, and now it's in a dictionary somewhere. And it's happening because there's an environment where there's outrage, there's entitlement, popular opinion, social media, but it doesn't just live online, as anybody under 25 knows, it is living in everyday life. And anywhere black and white thinking exists, where there's the death of nuance, where anything can be offensive, and where attention lives, that is a perfect breeding ground for cancel culture. Cancel culture is prevalent in schools, universities, and workplaces. That's nothing new to kind of this side of the room. They all know about that. And hopefully this evening, I'm going to give you guys some keys that are going to help you live well in the culture that you're living in, because it's tough and it's real, and it's a real thing that I think God wants to help you with. But perhaps you're thinking, Julie, I am not a part of woke Twitter. I don't have an Instagram account. TikTok is something that I think a clock does. I don't know my call-outs and my call-ins. I don't know what an ally theater is. I have not clue, any clue about receipts. And cancel culture really is not a pressing part of my life. Well, just for a minute, and I want to talk to you. And I'm kind of looking at this half of the room a little bit, but not that we sit in our favorite spaces. Now, if that's you and you're thinking, uh, Julie, I've never heard of cancel culture. What on earth are you going on about? You may never shout in someone's face, you are canceled at them. I'm kind of guessing you've not done that. But maybe you've had a conversation at work, maybe somebody has said something, and you've made a silent decision in that moment that they're not your kind of people, that they're not the kind of people that you would get along with, even though if they're in your world, they've either been placed there intentionally or allowed there by God for you to connect with them to help them connect back to God. And you've somehow decided that they're not your kind of people. You may never start a trending hashtag that says cancel all and then insert people group that you find offensive and you would struggle with. But when you click like and share or block on Facebook posts, the articles that you read, the news reports that you listen to, and if you find yourself getting outraged and exacerbated and frustrated and thinking, I don't think I could ever be friends with a person like that. I don't think I could ever sit down and listen to them fully and hear their point of view. I really can't understand at all where they're coming from. Then congratulations, you've just joined the woke masses in the age-old problem of cancel culture. Because it's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. And although this has a nice shiny packaging that is very tweetable and has lots of articles written about it, really what we're talking about is a problem that is common to all people, and that is offense. That's what cancel culture basically is, is offense. It just happens online. We used to call it boycotting, where we didn't like what somebody did, and then we just would kind of shut them down by not buying their stuff. But now we just do that with our words and affect people's lives that way. Now, 
This evening, we're going to look at an account in the Bible that's hopefully going to help us to navigate the culture that we find ourselves in. And whether you're dealing with this in an overt way, maybe your friend has said to you, you're canceled, or your group has said to somebody else, they're canceled, we don't talk to them, or you're thinking, this is not really a thing for me, but it's having that covert um, thing in your life where you're thinking these things, but you're not necessarily doing things about it actively. I think the Bible has something to talk to all of us about what we do when we're offended. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening in Matthew 11. Shall we pray together before we start? Jesus, please help. We are human, and that's difficult. And sometimes we really need to look at what your word says to guide us. And so for all of us in the room this evening, may we hear the words that you would have us hear, and may we lean into them, and may you help release us from every bondage that would try and keep us trapped in something that you never designed for us to live in. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, we're going to be in Matthew 11 tonight, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, that would be great. And we're actually going to look at a conversation between um, John the Baptist's and his disciples in a roundabout way, and Jesus. Now, if perhaps you're new to Christianity and you don't really read your Bible much, or perhaps it's been a while since you read your Bible and you're thinking, I don't really know much about who John the Baptist is, just some context around it. John the Baptist was a character in the New Testament. He was a real person. He was in the New Testament. And um, he had a very interesting birth announcement. An angel came and announced his birth to his um, father, who then didn't believe it and was struck dumb for a while. So it was quite an exciting account of what was going on. He was actually Jesus' cousin. So most people think that Jesus and John would have definitely have known of each other, probably spent quite a bit of time together at family festivals and um, parties and weddings and all that kind of stuff. So they were contemporaries, John the Baptist and Jesus. They were family. He was his cousin. And John the Baptist, when he was being introduced to the world, the angel was talking about this is somebody who's going to make the way straight for the Messiah. So right from the very get-go, John the Baptist is not just an average Joe. He is somebody who is going to do something with his life. When he grows up, he goes out to the desert, and he eats locusts and honey, the Bible tells us. So sorry, Daniel, he's not a vegan. He's probably more paleo. And uh, then he also tells us that he, has, he wears an outfit that is camel hair and leather, so he's into sustainable fashion, though. So we like that about him. He's very good. And uh, what happens is multitudes, the Bible says, came to hear him. So he had this popular um, preaching ministry where he would be out in the desert and, and around the Jordan area and where the Jordan River was, and literally hundreds and hundreds of people would come to hear him because he was talking about what the Messiah was going to do and all that kind of stuff, and he was baptizing people. But they also came because John wasn't shy with a little bit of controversy either. And so I reckon quite a few people came to see what is John going to say today, because he would often call out the religious elite of the day. And so he wasn't afraid of saying, people in power, you're doing it wrong, all that kind of stuff. If we were to pick up John the Baptist and put him into today's culture, he'd have the Instagram tick, he would be a verified person, he'd have thousands, if not millions of followers. You'd go on your Insta stories and you'd see a lot of those little things and you'd get a cup of tea thinking, John's gone on a rant, this is going to be good, what's he saying? He's a wild card, nobody knows. He's that kind of character. And so he's actually, what's happened to him, we found out, found out a little bit later in Matthew 14, is he's been talking a little bit too much in one sense, in that John the Baptist was calling out somebody in their culture who was doing something wrong, a guy called Herod, and he was saying, Herod, you're sleeping with your brother's wife, that's not okay. Which, which just seems like common sense, but apparently that was not great news for Herod. And so Herod canceled John and put him in prison. He didn't like what he was saying, so he was like, I'm canceling you, off you go to prison. Now, the Bible says that Herod actually wanted to kill John, but he was so afraid of the people. Herod was afraid of being canceled so much that he didn't kill John, he just kept him in prison. And so we find John in prison, and then this happens in, verse, in chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. We'll just pause there. It's always good when we're reading the Bible that we, we don't just read it, although that is a good thing, 
but when we read it, we ask questions of it. Who, what, why, where, when, how? That will help you understand what's going on, and it brings out the truth of what's happening. So when I read this, that John had heard in prison, my question is, how? How is John hearing in prison? Because in prison, you're isolated. So I'm assuming there's not pigeons flying to John a la a Disney film and kind of, you know, just talking to him about what's going on. Something else is happening. And what we find earlier in Matthew 9 is two disciples or the disciples of John come to Jesus and ask him about fasting. So even though John is in prison, it seems that because of his position and because he was so popular that he had a few more privileges than normal prisoners. And so it seems like John's disciples are able to come and go, and often they have conversations with Jesus, and that's what's happening here. John's sending two disciples to Jesus. Now, if the Bible tells us something, it's in there for a reason. So why two? Why not six? Why not 15? Why not like a big life group? Why, did, why was it two? And it's because the Bible wants us to know that two people constituted a valid testimony. So if he just sent one, somebody come, come back and say, oh, well, Jesus said this, and he'd be like, did they though? Whereas, you know, if you've got two people, then they can be like, oh, he said this. Oh, yeah, I remember they said this. It's like when you're trying to remember the coffee order. Doing it on your own, very difficult. Two of you, you're probably going to get the coffee order right. So that's what's going on. He's sending two disciples to go and talk to Jesus. Now, I find it interesting that John has still got disciples because earlier in a book called John, not about John the Baptist, a different book called John, we find out that John the Baptist when he sees Jesus, he's got a bunch of his disciples with him, and he sees Jesus, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then at least two of John's disciples just get up and go and follow Jesus straight away. We know that's Andrew and somebody else that we're not quite sure who that is. So John's done a good job in his discipleship because that's his job, is to prepare the way for Jesus. So he's had all these disciples, and quite a few of them would have gone to be with Jesus, but John's still got some disciples. So it makes me think, why have these guys stayed with John? Why have they not come over to Jesus? Why have they not seen something in Jesus that they wanted to follow him? And I just wonder, were these two disciples unconvinced? Were they just not quite convinced yet that Jesus was who he said he was? And, and was that what was going on in this moment? I'm going to come to verse 3. So John sent two of his disciples, and they said to him, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, there's two schools of thought here. Some people think John's doubting. He's having a bad day because John's really the one that's asking the question. John's asking, are you, are you the coming one or should I look for somebody else? And so some people think John's having a hard time. He's having like a crisis of faith. He doesn't really know what's going on. Some people think John's being intentional with who he's sending because he's sending two disciples who are wobbly, who, who, who need to know that Jesus is who he says he is because very soon John's going to die. It's not looking good for him in prison. So some people think John is preemptively sending two unconvinced disciples to encounter Jesus, to hear for themselves that who he really is. So that sets them up when John is going to be gone. Now, whichever it is, whether John's doubting or whether he's setting people up, he's being a great leader in that moment. And he's doing that because he's either helping somebody who, in his life who's confused and pointing them back to Jesus and helping position them to experience truth, or he's leveraging a moment that is vulnerable for him to help bring people closer to Jesus. And either of those two things are a great move by John. And it's a great move for either of us. There will be people in your world who it would be good for you to point them and position them to have an encounter with the truth of who Jesus is. That's always a good move. And there will also be people in your world who would be get closer to Jesus if you just shared that your life wasn't perfect and shiny like they think it is. So either of those two things is a good move. All right, so they said, are you the coming one or do we look for the another? It's a valid ask. John's not being unreasonable here with asking his question. When he's asking, are you the coming one, that's like a slang term for the Messiah. 
And it's fair for John to ask because Jesus isn't messiahing, if we can say it that way. Jesus isn't messiahing the way that John thinks it should happen, or really the way that anybody thought it should happen. It always intrigues me when I read the New Testament that a whole culture that was set up around we want to find the Messiah, and people like over time rose up and was like, it's me, and then they died, and then they stayed dead, and that's how you knew you picked the wrong Messiah. (laughs) That's why our Messiah is good, because he died, but he didn't stay dead. That's the test of being a good Messiah, is you rise from the dead, and everybody else had not done that so far, but the whole culture is like on a Messiah hunt. It's like, do you remember when Pokemon Go was a thing, and everyone was just, it'd be like that. We're all looking. We're looking for clues, like, oh, is it here? Is it there? Is it this person? This whole culture is looking for the Messiah, and yet they totally miss him when he's there doing Messiah-ish things. How is that? How can that be? And it's because it looked different than what they were expecting. And we might think, oh, you silly people, but we do this all the time. And our culture does this all the time because they're expecting Jesus to look a certain way, and yet Jesus looks nothing like that, and they totally miss him. Have you ever met somebody who is just so good and so kind, you think, surely you must be a Christian, and they're not. And you're like, how? How have you missed it? Tom Hanks, I'm like, how are you not a Christian? Surely you must be. I'm praying for Tom Hanks. I'm like, come on, I want you in the kingdom. Anyway, so that's that's just part of the thing. They'd missed, it just looked different than how they were expecting. And here's the expectation that John references. This is what people think. When John just asked this simple question, are you the coming one or do we look for somebody else? Here's what they think John was asking. They thought he was talking from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They think he's also talking from Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a collar, on the foal of a donkey. What are they expecting? They're expecting a king. What does a king need? King needs a kingdom. If you're just a king without a kingdom, then you're not a king. You're just a person with a shiny hat. So he needs a kingdom. That's what Harry's going to find out. It's going to be very sad. I'm very sad. Anyway, let's move on. We'll edit that bit out. It's a big deal for the British. We're not, we're not okay. The Scots are fine. They don't care. But the, the English, the English are really bothered by it. It's not good. Anyway. So they're looking for a king, king needs a kingdom, but the kingdom that they're, that where they are, there's already a king, the Romans are there, so there's already a king, and so what they're expecting is a Messiah who's going to come is going to have to bring war and overthrow the powers that are in place at the time, and that is exactly what Jesus came to do, but not at all how they thought he was going to do it. Jesus did come to declare war on the powers of sin and darkness, and he did come to overthrow, but not people. He came to overthrow the powers of sin and hell. And so how they thought it was going to look and how it actually looked when it came to it, totally different. So why does this matter to John? Why is he asking the question? It matters to John because John's in a Roman prison about to be killed. So the stakes for John in this question are pretty high. If John's right, yes, you are the coming one, the one Do I need to look for somebody else? If Jesus is like, yes, it's me, John's like, great. If it's you, you're going to overthrow Herod. I'm going to be out the prison. We're cousins, probably going to get a nice position in the kingdom. It's going to be great. That's how it's going to be. If it's a no, no, John, I'm not the Messiah, well, then that sucks for John because he's picked the wrong horse and he has to now find another Messiah and the time is short because he's about to die. So the stakes for John are high. His life is literally on the line. And I just want to pause here and just say for a moment that this John asking this question has had a weight 
of evidence to show him who Jesus really is. John's not like, oh, Jesus who? Like, I don't know this guy. Their cousins, their family, he would have known about when Jesus was teaching in the temple and everybody was amazed. We know that John was there at the baptism of Jesus. He actually baptized Jesus. And in that moment, heaven opens, a dove comes down. God says, this is my son. I'm really pleased with him. Everyone hears that. So that's a fairly good you know, indicator that this is the person you're looking for. John himself, out of his own mouth, has prophesied, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's a weight of evidence and experience that John has. And yet, he still asks the question, are you the coming one or should I look for somebody else? He's asking, Jesus, can it really be you even though you are not fitting in the box of my expectation? Can it be you? And he asks the question, and I want you to notice tonight that you are in good company. It is okay to ask the question. When you have a question, even though you have weight of experience and you think, oh, I shouldn't need to ask this question because God, you've done so much and you've answered so many prayers, don't keep that question inside of you. Follow John's example and ask the question. Verse four says this. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus answers the question, are you the coming one or should we look for somebody else? And he says, here's the Messiah checklist. And he starts to tick them off. Here it is. And it's actually from Isaiah 35. People think that this is Isaiah 61, but it's not. It's Isaiah 35, and that's important, and we'll come back to that later. Now, all these things that have happened up to now, they've all happened so far in Matthew's gospel. If you read chapters 1 to 11, you'll see that Jesus has indeed made the blind see, made the lame walk, the lepers have been cleansed, the deaf have heard, dead have been raised up by this point, and the poor have had gospel preached to them. What I find so interesting in this bit, because I read like 1 to 11 before I got to this, was that some other really cool stuff had happened as well. Jesus had... uh, they were in a storm, and Jesus had said to the storm, stop, and it had stopped. Now, if I'm making my list for being a Messiah, talking to the elements on the earth and them listening to me would probably make my cut. I would probably put that on my resume. I'd be like, look out for this, guys, because here's a really cool thing that I can do. You know, is it a bit blowy today? No problem. Do you need rain? Okay, here you go. I would put that because that's spectacular. But Jesus omits that, and what he puts instead is, I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. That's how you know it's really me because I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. Not, oh my goodness, I can control the weather, but I'm preaching the gospel to the poor. Why is that in there? And it's in there because that's a distinctive of the gospel. You can't have the gospel in its fullness without being inclusive to everybody, without there being no barriers for anybody at any level in society of any breadth of experience to come to Jesus. And he says, this is how you know it's really me, guys, is that anybody can come to me. The religious elite, yes, they can come to me. The poor, yes, they can come to me. And that was super challenging to everybody then. And it is super challenging to us now because we still exclude people from the gospel for a million different reasons. But Jesus says, no, I'm coming for everybody. Whatever type of poor they are, time poor, money poor, relationship poor, hope poor, it doesn't matter what poor they are, the gospel still works for everybody. And so it's really important that when you're living your life, just don't exclude anybody because Jesus said, this is for everybody. And they're having, in this moment where John says, are you the one coming or should I look for somebody else? And then if you notice, that's a yes or no question, isn't it? That's a, that's a straight, yes, I am. No, don't look for anybody else. That should have been the answer there. But he doesn't do that. He, he answers by quoting some scripture. And this is a classic Jewish way of converse, like conversing. We don't do this because we're raised with a Greek mindset education that is, here's a fact, learn it, spit it back out to me, well done, you can leave school now. That's how we do our education. 
but Jewish and Eastern ways of learning is dialogue and conversation, and I'm going to give you a hint, and will you pick it up, and oh, you did, that's good, have some more hints, that's how they do it. And so Jesus quotes back to John, Isaiah 35, and lets John fill in the blanks himself, whereas he could have answered, Jesus could have answered, and that helps me, and it's going to help you, because sometimes when we ask a question and we don't get a straight answer back from Jesus, which let's be honest, is super frustrating, isn't it? When we ask for something and we don't get, yes, you can do this, no, don't do that, or yes, I'll do it by such and such a day. When we don't get that straight answer and Jesus gives us something else instead, what he's doing is he's drawing us to greater truth. And we're going to see that in towards the end of this preach, that Jesus in this moment so beautifully is drawing John. He's like, John, I know that you want me to say yes or no. I know that you want just a straight answer, but I'm not giving you what you think you need. I'm going to give you what you actually need, and I'm going to draw you towards truth. Verse 6 says this. I love this verse. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. If ever there was a verse for our times, this is it. Lots of us know the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, and we like those because they make great little Instagrammable quotes, and it's lovely. Nobody is crocheting this and putting it up on their wall. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. It's probably the least known Beatitude. And it's actually the one that we need to help us with cancel culture. This is what's going to help us. So why, why is Jesus saying this to John? Why is this going to help John? Because what John's asked is, is it you? Should I look for someone else? And Jesus gives him a checklist and then says, John, you're going to be fine if you just don't get offended with me. Well, how on earth do those two things go together? Why is this helpful to John? The answer that came back to John is simultaneously going to be what John does and doesn't want to hear all at the same time. Because what John hears in this moment is, yes, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. Here's my resume. You can check it out that it's me because of what I'm doing. But no, John, it's not going to look like what you thought. And so at the very same time in the answer, John gets what he wants, and he doesn't get what he wants right at the same time. Yes, I am the Messiah. No, it's not going to fit the box of your expectation. And what John then has to do with his box of expectation, the box of what he thought Jesus should fit into, he now has to face the reality that he's going to die in prison. Because yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but no, he's not coming to liberate things. No, he's not going to overthrow because blessed are you if you're not offended in me. And then what happens is John's box of expectation is now set down in front of him. And it now becomes to John a stumbling block. It's now something, his expectation of how he thinks it should be, how he thinks it should go, now becomes to John something in his way, something that now becomes a stumbling block to him. And in this bit where it says, blessed is he who is not offended, that word offended is the Greek word skandalizo, which means to trap or to snare, to become indignant, to be offended, to be shocked, to put a stumbling block in the way. And Jesus says, guys, you're going to be blessed in your life if when I don't meet your expectations, it doesn't become a stumbling block in your way. When your expectations aren't met, there is a choice to make, Jesus says. It can become a stumbling block or you can choose not to get offended because of what I'm doing in your life. Now, if you're thinking, Julie, Jesus doesn't offend people. Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild. He's nice. He's loving. Good Jesus doesn't offend anybody. Then I would lovingly say to you, give it time. Because it's coming. Anybody who has walked with Jesus for a while knows Jesus says some pretty offensive things. He has some things that are difficult for us. And if when we're reading the Bible and in our relationship with Jesus, 
There is nothing that troubles or perplexes you or challenges you or makes you think, gosh, that's difficult. Gosh, I don't know if I can do that. If there's nothing that does that in you, then somehow you've taken our dynamic, controversial, misunderstood, fully God, fully man savior, and somehow simplified him down to a neat little savior that fits the box of your, of, of your image. You've, you've somehow taken Jesus and you've now remade him in your image because we don't get offended with ourselves. And so if you're never offended by Jesus, can I lovingly suggest to you this evening that perhaps it's not Jesus that you're following, not the real one at least, because Jesus was offending people right, left, and center through the Gospels all the time. And if you follow Jesus, he still says difficult things to you that you think, gosh, that's harsh. Goodness me, I don't know if I can do that. Oh, I, no, just no. <laughs> I have frequent conversations with Jesus like that, and the re- that's part of how we know that we're following the authentic Jesus, because it's, everything's not neat and tidy, because it shouldn't be. So John, in this moment, he's got the potential, Jesus says, to be offended, because Jesus has given John a key here. John, blessed are you if you're not offended because of me, but why could John be offended here? And in researching it this week, here's what I found out. Offense sits on a personal scale. That's why everybody can be offended about different things. What offends you may not offend me. If somebody said to me, Melbourne coffee is better and Brisbane coffee sucks, I, I just don't care. I just don't, I, it doesn't bother me. Whereas if you said, you know, Bolton's rubbish, I'd be like, come at me. Like, it's my hometown. Like, we will fight. Like, because I care about it. That's important to me. And it's a different thing that happens. It's a personal scale. I wouldn't fight you very well. You'd probably win, but you know. (laughs) But here's when you're approaching your life and things are happening and people are saying things and you're reading things and world is going on around you. Here's some things that are maybe going to help you as you come across a stumbling block. First thing is this. You have to care. To be offended... You have to care. If you don't care about it, you can't be offended. It just doesn't matter to you. And so if you are offended, just take note of that. This is important to me on some level. It may be an unconscious level, but on some level, you care about it. When you're reading the Bible and something offends you in the Bible, as it should every now and again, don't be like, oh my goodness, the Bible's offending me. That's a really bad thing. No, it shows that you care shows that you care about what you're reading. If you didn't care, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, whatever. But because you care, that's why you're offended. Why does John care in this scenario? Well, because his life's at stake. That's why John cares. It's personal to him. Second thing is this. The size of your stumbling block relates to the level of your relationship. If a stranger in the street shouts something nasty at me, and I don't know what they'd say, but anyway, they, they shout something horrible at me. Well, it's not nice. Nobody likes horrible things being shouted at them. But I don't know them. I, I don't really care about what they think about me. And so, to be honest, it's pretty easy for me just to be like, oh, what a horrible person, and kind of move on with my life. It's not a big thing for me because I don't know them, and their opinion about me doesn't matter. It's a small block. It doesn't really have a big weight in my life. However, the size and the level of our relationship determines the size of the box. If your boss, friend, leader, pastor, that's an increasing box of expectations that we have. So Neil's box, my box of expectation with Neil is pretty big because we're married and we love each other and he's supposed to have my back all times because that's what being married is. And so... If Neil says something that offends me, well, now it's a big deal. I can't just like walk over it. And that's because the box of my expectation is bigger. And that's why it's difficult. Neil never offends me. You should just say that now. He's perfect. He's awesome. There you go. Brownie points for me. So the box of your expectation gets bigger depending on the level of your relationship. That's why 
if your boss or somebody says something to you that you actually care about, it's a big deal. If the box is bigger, the stumbling block becomes that much bigger. That's why it's a big deal to John, because this is John's cousin. It's his family. And let's be clear, if, John wanted, if Jesus wanted John out of prison, Jesus could do that. He's just made a storm disappear by saying, be still. So if he wanted John out of prison, he could just be like, John out of prison. And John would appear out of prison because he can do stuff like that. So the box of John's expectation on Jesus as Messiah, pretty big box, which means pretty big stumbling block. This is a big deal that John has to try and get over. Third thing is this. Your past history determines if you will stack your block. So, level of your expectation, here it is, it's a box. And something happens, and I'm offended, and it becomes a stumbling block to me, and it's down there, and then I think, do you know what, this is too difficult, or I don't know how to deal with this, and actually, I'm just gonna pick this up, and I'm gonna carry my offense with me now, I'm gonna carry my stumbling block with me, and we don't do this, obviously, we'd all have ripped arms if we were carrying actual boxes around, but we do this kind of emotionally and spiritually. So we carry it around. And then what happens is we come to another scenario, perhaps something similar presses our same buttons, and we end up with another box, another set of expectations. And because it's similar, we think, oh, I remember this. And then what we do is we take our stumbling block from before, and we now start to stack it on the offense that's just happened, and it becomes a bigger obstacle in our life. And what was just a one-time occurrence now becomes something that starts to build something in our life. This is sometimes why people church hop, because they get offended, pick it up, don't know how to deal with it. And that's not, that's not saying, oh gosh, everybody that church hops is offended, but it's a real thing. When we don't know how to deal with this stuff, we pick it up, we carry it with us, we do the best that we can, but we carry something with us that we're never meant to. And then when something similar to the first um, met expectations happens, we start to stack. This is where you get unhealthy relationship patterns. Same thing. Because it's similar, we start to do the same thing that we did before, and we begin to stack, and it becomes a blockade and a barrier in our life where people can't get close and we can't have freedom because we've started to stack the boxes. I have one last illustration, and I believe this is not actually for everybody. I believe this is one or two, and God gave me this very specific word, and it's about Lego blocks. (laughs) Because you might be thinking, well, Julie... I don't have these big boxes in my life. I don't, have, I don't have a list of people that is coming to my mind straight away that, gosh, I'm so offended with them and is a big stumbling block to me. I don't have that. What God said to me very clearly was, there's at least one or two people in the room this evening, and no, you don't have a big block, but what you do have is a tiny block. And at some point, you've had the unusual pain of stepping on a Lego block which you will know if you've ever done that, it just challenges whether you're a Christian or not at that moment. (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) And so you've stepped on it, and you've been like, oh, it's difficult. But if you've ever stepped on a Lego block, if you've ever been so unfortunate to do this, on a Lego pile usually was what it happens, where you're not watching and you just crunch your foot on it. What happens is, is that some shake off, but usually there's one that's just stuck to your foot. You've done that? And so you've been like, oh, that's painful. And then you've been like, that's all right, move on. And what's actually happened is is that it's stuck in you. It's not big, this is tiny. This is tiny. And and it's not a big thing. You're not having to lug a big thing around with you, but it's a tiny offense. But what's happened is it's actually become embedded in you. It's in you. And you're thinking, oh, I don't have a big thing, but it's inside of you. And it's not allowing you to run as fast as you can run and as fast as God wants you to. And this evening, he wants to say to you, son, daughter, it's time to get rid of the Lego. Just pick it out, just come to me, I'll show you what it was, and let's pick it out. Let's get it out of your foot, and let's get you running the way that you were meant to. Because it's not a big thing, it's just a small thing, but it's causing you to limp in a way that I never designed you to. So if that's for you, you take that and talk to Jesus about it this week. So. When the box of our expectations is not met, when we've got that potential 
stumbling block in front of us. When we're thinking about it in terms of other humans, what do we do? What are we going to do next time someone says something, tweets something, you know, has a conversation, and we think, oh, that's just rubbish. I would never do that, or whatever it is. That, that, that moment where we have the potential to be offended, we have the potential to silently cancel them in our mind. What do we do at that moment? The Bible tells us clearly to do three things. First is this, cover, cover. Proverbs 17, nine says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. It feels so good when you are offended, when something's happened to you and you feel sore about it, because you should, because it's a justifiable thing that's happened to you, and for whatever reason, and it wasn't good and it wasn't right, and you've got a reason to be offended, it feels really good in that moment to go to a friend and start to talk to them about it. Neil, can you come up? You're gonna be my friend now. That's nice. And I'm gonna talk to you about my offense. Now, this person really offended me, and, um, but you know, I'm gonna be a good Christian, I'm gonna kinda get over it, but um, that's what happened to me. And I'm talking to Neil about my offense, my stumbling block, but what I'm doing in that moment, the Bible tells me, is that I'm actually just doing this. And so at the end of the conversation, I'm like, oh, I feel so much better. I feel light, I feel great, I've talked it out, that's awesome. But what I've actually done is, I've just passed my stumbling block to Neil. Because that's what the Bible says, is that you've now, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. It feels so good to talk about it when you're offended, but the Bible's really clear. Talking, tweeting, typing, when you are offended, is a bad idea. I'm released, but now when Neil comes to this person, he's got my offense. He's got my stumbling block, and so then now creates a barrier between him and somebody who he's got no problem with, simply because I talked about it. Now we must, like, we think, oh, we're talking about it's normal and human. It is, but Jesus is like, normal and human in this situation is not good. You need to come and talk to God about it. Don't talk to somebody else about your offense. Talk to God about it. Cover it. Cover it. They don't need to hear. And I'd maybe go as far to say, even husbands and wives, and me and Neil share everything, but this has really challenged me that if I'm offended, Do I need to pass my stumbling block to Neil? God says, actually, no, I don't. I just need to go to him with it. Second thing, the Bible tells us to overlook. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes you slow to anger, and it's to your glory to overlook an offense. God says, when you get offended, when that cancel culture is happening all around you, overlook it. Being offended, having stumbling blocks, it's part of being human. If you're never being offended, you may be a robot. So let's, you know, I don't know how you work out if you are just a sentient robot or not, I don't know. But everybody on the planet is offended at some point. It's just part of being a human. And so if everybody is offended at some point, know that you are going to offend somebody else and what would you want them to do? You'd want them to overlook your offense. Because guess what, when you're offending somebody, I'm going to guess 99.9% of the time, you don't mean it. You don't mean to offend them. You're not going out of your way to be offensive and horrible to somebody. And so if you'd want somebody to overlook your unintentional offense, then perhaps we can extend that grace and overlook it for somebody else and say, they probably didn't mean what I thought that they were meaning in that moment. I'm going to overlook their offense. And the third thing is this, pray. Pray about it. Talk to God about it. Don't talk to everybody else about it. Talk to God. Stepping over and around a fence is difficult and hard because we all deal with it. But when you pray, you get strength and grace and perspective from Jesus that you really need. That helps us on a human-to-human level. But what if you're offended with Jesus like John is in this story? John's not offended with everybody else. John's offended with Jesus. And you would think, oh, you can't get offended with Jesus. But no, you can, and you do, and you will. So what if it's Jesus that you're offended with? What if your box of expectations hasn't been met by Jesus, and now what you've got in front of you, you've set it down, and that's now become 
a stumbling block between you and Jesus. We'll often say it like this, I don't feel like I can hear Jesus anymore. Worship doesn't feel like it used to. I don't like going to life group. No, I don't wanna be in community. I'll come to church just once a month because that's what I can fit in. That's sometimes what offense sounds like because being around the things of God is then challenging to our stumbling block because this then becomes comfortable. It becomes something that we that we know shouldn't be there, but we really don't know how to get around it. Remember earlier we talked about when Jesus gives his answer to John, when John says, are you the one that's coming or should I look for somebody else? And John gives his Messiah checklist, and that's from Isaiah 35. What Jesus is doing in that moment is a really clever thing called remez. Can you say that with me? Remez. And that's a great Jewish way that we said earlier where he teases John with a piece of scripture, knowing that John's gonna know the rest of it and John's gonna fill in the blanks. So let's look at what Jesus' full answer to John was. Here's what Isaiah 35 says. I'm gonna start from verse three for time. It says this. This is what John, so before this, I, I want you to hear this through John's ears. Because this is the answer Jesus gives to John, and this is John who's in prison, who knows that he's going to die if Jesus isn't who he said he is and isn't going to do it the way that he wants him to do it. And this is what John hears. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like dim and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where the jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there and it's gonna be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean won't journey on it. Wicked fools won't go around in it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast and they won't be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. John, who's about to die unjustly, has asked Jesus, is it you? I, you're not meeting my expectations. This is a stumbling block. And Jesus says to John, be strong. Don't fear. Vengeance is coming. You're gonna be in Zion Sorrow and sighing is gonna flee away. And when Jesus talks to John in Isaiah 35, what he does in that moment is he gives him something firm. He gives him a stepping stone. And in that moment, he gives him something that he can lay right where his stumbling block is, the thing that is getting in the way of him. He can't do anything about that, but what Jesus gives him is hope. Be strong, don't fear. Your God will come. And it's not gonna look like John thinks. He is gonna die, but John knows gladness and sorrow is gonna overtake me. There's not gonna be sorrow and sighing anymore. And Jesus gives John a stepping stone. And he says, John, here's the stumbling block, but here's the stepping stone. And if you put your feet on this, you can get up and over your fence. And that's what he's doing in that moment. And that's why it's so important you take your questions to Jesus. John never asked the question. He never gets this stepping stone. It stays inside of him. And that's why you have to ask your difficult questions of Jesus because he's able to lead you to something. He won't give you the answer that you want, but he's gonna lead you to something solid and permanent that you can then put down in front of your offense, in front of your unmet expectations, in front of the thing that's gonna stop you getting to where God wants you to go, and it becomes a thing for you to step up and over. I had a very large box 
of unmet expectations when it came to having children and having a family. Really big box, because I really cared about it. And I took my difficult questions to Jesus, and he was actually able not to answer them, which was a real bummer, because you just want Jesus to answer things, and he didn't answer. What he did do was he gave me one of these. And he gave me a stepping stone to say, Julie, better is one day in my courts than thousands elsewhere. And what he said to me when he, when he teased that, so he, he said that to me, and I was like, that's just not helpful, Jesus. Because <laughs> it wasn't, let's be honest. And he was like, he said, go, go read the rest of it. And I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. So I read the rest of it, and then I'm reading it, and he said to me, Julie, what doesn't it say? And I'm like, uh. And then he said, Julie, it doesn't say, better is one day in your courts with a family. Better is one day in your courts with children. But it's one day in your courts with how you think it should work out in the time frame that you have, in the way that you think it should. And what he did, I wasn't pleased with that answer, just so you know. In that moment, I was pretty ticked off with God. And he asked me, is that enough for you? And in that moment, I said, I honestly don't know. I'll get back to you on that. Because I'm not going to say, yeah, Jesus, you're enough for me, which sounds great in a song. But when it's something you really care about, let's be honest, I didn't know. That was a real question. I didn't know if Jesus was enough. And I was like, I'll get back to you. And I had a good think and a good pray. And I took about six months of me going, is Jesus enough on his own? If I never have kids, if our family names die, if I never am looked after, if we live in Australia and nobody looks after us because we have no family when we're old, and everybody that we've known in church has died or gone or just doesn't care about us anymore because there's no family, because I'm an only child, no brothers or sisters, we don't know anybody over here. Is it okay? Big questions, but I took them to Jesus. And he gave me something in the end that I could use to get over my stumbling block. And this evening, whatever stumbling block is in front of you, I promise you, Jesus is probably not gonna say, Yes, no. Yes, it's me. No, don't bother looking for anybody else. He won't give you the pat answer that you want. He will lead you to truth that's going to help you have a firm foundation. I wonder if the band could join me. This is the Savior that we serve. We don't serve a Savior who, when we have doubts and questions, at the first sign of us having a wobble or not really knowing what to do with something, cancels us and says, you're a rubbish disciple, go away. We don't have that kind of savior. We have somebody in Jesus who is able to take the difficult questions, who is able to listen to us and journey us through the most difficult parts and the most confusing and like the bits that we just don't understand. He's able to lead us through that if we're just honest with him, with our questions. He's not petty, Jesus. He's not gonna be like, that's such a stupid question. Why would you ask that? He's not like that. He's not like some of your teachers in school that make you feel this big. He will not do that to you. He lovingly leads us to stepping stones that help us get up and over our unmet expectations that have become a stumbling block for us.